1: are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartRadio or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised.
2: Radical is released every Tuesday and brought to you absolutely free. But if you want ad-free listening and early access to next week's episode, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus. For more information, check out tenderfootplus.com enjoy the episode Atlanta, Georgia was once a commercial crossroads of the Confederacy. Then, decades after the Civil War, in the middle of the 20th century, it became something dramatically different. The seat of the country's black political leadership. That was at the height of the Civil Rights Movement. The city's business elite called Atlanta the city too busy to hate. There are other nicknames too. The Black Mecca. The City in a Forest the ATL. My name is Mosi Secret and for me, Atlanta is my hometown. It's where I grew up. Within the city there's a neighborhood called the West End that was once a rich white enclave, with bungalows, Victorian homes, and a leafy tree canopy. In the 50s and 60s, after desegregation, white people took flight to the suburbs like in so many other American cities and black people moved in. Institutional neglect, urban decay, and the crack epidemic followed. That was the West End in the 80s when I was growing up in Atlanta. Pretty rough. But it was also around that time that black people, African-American Muslims in particular, began to create a thriving religious community in the West End. It turned the neighborhood into something radically different from the rest of Atlanta, unique even in the country. It was self-led and, to a large extent, self-policed, but it was not removed from the city and the country's problems. There was tension, and there were clashes. Then, on the night of March 16, 2000, it all came to a deadly explosive head. That confrontation is what this story is about. It happened around West End Park, the namesake park in the neighborhood. Across a small street south of the park, there's a one-story wooden building. It looks like a house, but people in the community have used it as their mosque since the late 70s. I like to use the Arabic word for mosque, masjid. On March 16, 2000, around 8 p.m., the Adan, the Muslim call to prayer, was broadcast throughout the West End. Those bungalows and Victorians African-American Muslims lived in them now. The neighborhood was like a little Muslim village. And at the call to prayer that night, like always, men wearing thobes and kufis walked from their homes to the masjid. They took off their shoes and got ready for prayer in the front room, shoulder to shoulder, toe to toe. That's how Muslims pray, or make salat, lined up facing the city of Mecca as they recite verses from the Quran. A 17-year-old kid, just a few years younger than me at the time, joined the prayer. And after salat that night, when most of the men walked home, Abdus Samad Jihad stuck around for a math lesson.
3: We was going over fractions, and um, I think also we was dealing with a little trigonometry or algebra, something like that, and I I was having problems
2: real bad. The streets in the neighborhood are small. It's quiet, especially at night. The masjid was normally a great place for Abdus Samad to focus on algebra.
3: You didn't hear nobody saying anything. You didn't hear nobody speaking anything. It was just completely silence. And then all of a sudden, gunfire. So naturally, me, I don't know what's going on. I'm sitting down doing math, and they, I just know the teacher jumped on top of me and, and you know, said, get down, because it sounded so close. Abdus Samat and the
2: tutor laid still on the floor.
3: All I knew was it was scary. You know, it was was scary to hear. I didn't know what was going on. I was just saying, oh, God, I thought somebody, honestly, when I heard it shooting, I thought somebody was doing a drive-by on the masthead, trying to shoot up on the masthead while I was in. So I thought he jumped on me. I was just like, God, don't let me get shot in the head or get shot by by a stray bullet. I thought somebody was doing a drive-by. That's why he jumped on top of me.
2: They weren't hit, and it wasn't a drive-by. But with shots still ripping through the air, someone dragged Abdus Samad into a closet and told him, no matter what, stay put. And then after that, the gunshots continued
3: and continued and continued and continued. It was like almost like an overkill, like it was a war zone out there. Who would shoot that many? tonight? Like no one, I mean, no one would do that.
2: When the gunfire finally stopped, Abdus Samad crept out of the closet. Through a window, he saw the street was flooded with cops. And then, a few moments later, he heard his father calling for him. They lived right next to the masjid. So he hurried home. So you spent the rest of the night looking out the window, huh?
3: Well, yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. Looking out the window, and then my dad put me to sleep. He said, hey, you gotta go to school in the morning.
2: The responding officers found the aftermath of a shootout. There were dozens of shell casings strewn about, and two black men lying on the ground. They were bleeding, one in the street and another in the grass next to the masjid. The men were uniformed deputies from the Fulton County Sheriff's Office, the county that includes most of Atlanta. Someone had shot the cops. The sheriff's deputies were there to arrest a man named Jamil Abdullah al on some relatively small charges. He lived right across the street from the masjid. In fact, he was the imam, its leader, and the de facto leader of the whole neighborhood. When investigators arrived at the crime scene, Imam Jamil, as he was known in the neighborhood, was nowhere to be found. It wasn't a leap for the investigators to suspect he shot the deputies. And that's the story that's still in the public record about what happened that night, March 16, 2000. I was away at college when it happened. Then, I began working as a journalist. I've been doing that for more than 20 years now. And by some strange twist of fate, this story about Imam Jamil in the shootout, it found me. Imam Jamil was convicted of the shooting after a tense, high-profile trial. Some of the evidence against him was shaky, and a prosecutor was accused of misconduct. Imam Jamil insisted he was innocent, And his family and supporters, they're still making that case. In the last year or so, I've learned that the story in the public record, it's not complete. There's much more to Imam Jamil and more to what happened that night. More than law enforcement has cared to acknowledge and more than Muslims in Atlanta have cared to acknowledge. Somehow, when I started asking questions, the timing was right for a new narrative to emerge. Imam Jamil was not an ordinary man, or even an ordinary Imam. He was legendary, the stuff of myth, the kind of person people tell stories about. Some of those stories, people need them to find the courage to face their own lives. Some of those stories, people fear, fear their danger and their violence. But all of the stories, regardless of their basis in fact, tend to grow. Over the course of his life, Imam Jamil became more and more of a hero, even as he became more and more of a villain. And even the tallest of those tales had a way of becoming real, as people lived with them, acted on them. Sorting through this tangle I've just described, bringing this story to you, it required me to come to grips with how I let stories take shape in my own mind, and just how I'm willing to pass them on this one I'm going to tell you, and the way I'm going to tell it, it's one I want to pass on. From Campside Media, Tinderfoot TV, and iHeart Podcasts. This is Radical. I'm Mosi Secret. Episode One. Fire.
4: Visit ParamountPlus.com slash TheShot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime Annual Plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply.
2: Imam Jamil el story begins in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where he was born into a black family in 1943. He was the third and final child of a man off fighting in the Second World War and a woman who worked two jobs. As a teacher at the local orphanage and as a maid. The parents named their youngest Hubert Gerald Brown. As a kid, he was drawn to the young bloods on the corner, the bad motherfuckers who made a profession of hanging out all day, playing the dozens, the ones who excelled at sports like he did. These were the guys who stood firmest against the establishment, Brown thought, against Jim Crow. They didn't give a shit about white values. The kid could talk trash with the best of them, and they took to calling him Rap, a moniker that stuck as he rose to public life. Most of the folks I spoke with, who knew Imam Jamil before he became Muslim, they called him Rap, H. Rap Brown. So that's what I'll do too. Rap bristled at Jim Crow's efforts to control his movements, to limit the idea of what he could be, and he bucked the system in the brashest way possible at every opportunity. In his first book, a memoir called Die, Nigger, Die, not my favorite book title, Rapp wrote that he once went to a Boy Scout circus. It was segregated, but nobody was going to warn Rap Brown that he couldn't go see what the white boys were up to. He walked over there and heard a white boy holler out, Nigger, you have been sentenced to death. And the boy started shooting him with a BB gun. The next year, Rapp brought his own BB gun to the circus. Rap grew up to be a tall man, distinguished by his height, six foot five. He was thin, lanky, with dangling arms and long fingers. But he moved smoothly through the world, almost gliding as he walked, his own kind of swagger. He was light-skinned, a complexion that black folks used to call red, similar to Malcolm X. He grew a short afro and a mustache, wore a lot of denim, sometimes a leather jacket. In the 60s, Rapp followed his brother to Howard University in D.C. and got involved in organized activism. He read thinkers like W.E.B. Du Bois and Frantz Fanon and Frederick Douglass for the first time, and eventually became a part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. That's the SNCC, or SNCC. It was the most prominent student group of the movement. While Rapp was a part of SNCC, he grew close to a fellow firebrand named Willie Ricks, or Mukasa Dada, as he's known these days. Mukasa, 80 years old now, hasn't lost much of his fire.
5: Rap was always around. And you would have encountered
2: him personally. You met him and hung out with him.
5: I met him, hung out with him, uh, smoked herb. We used to smoke our herb and whatever and party and whatever. And we fought together. And, and Rap was a fighter and a warrior. And, and he was in many, many battles
2: inside of Snick. The organization was working in the Black Belt, a mostly rural swath of counties across the South that got its name from the black fertile soil there and the black people who lived on the land since the end of their enslavement. But despite their demographics, these mostly poor, majority black counties were still controlled by white people. So SNCC sent in organizers. Mukasa was one of them, and so was RAP.
5: First thing organizers have to do is uh, find a place to eat, find a place to sleep and also find local leadership. If not there, you have to create it.
2: Lowndes County, Alabama, where both Rapp and Mukasa worked, was the center of the struggle. Many black folks there lived in wood shacks out on the flat, grassy plains, sometimes near pine and oak forests. They outnumbered white people four to one But few, if any, of the more than 5,000 eligible black voters in Lowndes County were registered to vote. Landowners evicted black people who tried to register, and night riders fired shots into the homes of local leaders. While SNCC was organizing in Lowndes County, a sheriff's deputy killed a volunteer working closely with the organization. In the 1960s, at least 20 civil rights activists were killed, a conservative estimate that doesn't include the hundreds of people who were injured and threatened. SNCC is widely remembered for nonviolence. Of course, it did have the word nonviolent in its name. But as I've learned more about the organization, that's really only part of the story. Mukasa puts it pretty simply.
5: We use nonviolence as a tactic, but Dr. King uses it as a way of life and whatever. And we said, we'll do it in front. Let a white man hit us in front of a camera. But if they hit us in the camera, that, we're going to fuck them up. Uh, if they follow us around the corner, we're going to fuck them up.
2: Mukasa isn't speaking for everyone. Other SNCC organizers may have seen it differently. But Mukasa and Rap, they were prepared to defend themselves with violence if necessary. And this was in line with many of the locals they were working with. Black people living in the Black Belt in Lowndes County kept shotguns next to their front doors or handguns next to their beds, and some SNCC activists carried guns with them.
5: Yeah, we used to go out in the backyards and practice shooting and all that kind of stuff all the time.
2: But did you ever have to fire your weapon in a confrontation?
5: Absolutely. A bunch of them. Yeah, we'd be driving down the street and white folks jump behind us and start shooting. We'd lean out there and start shooting back.
2: Rapp had carried a gun for years. Got his first one at 14 after a run-in with some white boys. He stole it from a sporting goods store. Rapp wrote in his autobiography, Give me a gun before you even give me somebody to work with. A gun won't fail you. People will. Mukasa said that once, when Rapp was organizing in Alabama, some of the black folks who had registered to vote were kicked off their land. So they set up a tent city, and then white people attacked.
5: And the white folks come by their tents and shoot in the tents. So Rap, used to fire them back up. Some white man got shot over there. Rapp said, hell yeah, we shot him.
2: Rapp gained a reputation within SNCC and across the black belt for fearlessness and for his speeches that encouraged and inspired people to stand up for themselves. A year after SNCC started working in Lowndes County in earnest, the local leaders organized their own political party, the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. They made a Black Panther their symbol, inspiring activists in California who would later found the Black Panther Party. In 1966, despite intimidation, 1,600 people in Lowndes County voted for the new party. They wanted to take down the sheriff, given the violence against Black people, and elect their own candidate. But no one on the party ticket won. It was this same year that SNCC began peeling away more publicly from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his rallying cry of freedom now. SNCC's new rallying cry was black power. The next year, in 1967, Rapp became SNCC's chairman and was named an honorary officer of the Black Panther Party. Now, Rapp wasn't just traveling around the black belt he was chairman traveling around the nation. At speeches and press conferences like this one, he shocked many Americans, black and white.
1: Violence is a part of America's culture. It is as American as cherry pie. We will use that violence to rid ourselves of oppression if necessary.
2: In his speeches, Rapp boldly explained the mindset he thought was necessary for real change in a country where racism was a part of the bedrock.
1: We did not make the laws in this country. We are neither morally nor legally confined to those laws. Those laws that keep them up keep us down. you got to begin to understand that.
2: It was a revolution, and the object was not for black people to simply replace white people at the top of the heap. Rapp and his comrades wanted to toss out the systems the country ran on, capitalism and all they saw a grand conflict between black people and the government controlled by white people. A government that used police and law enforcement like a domestic military force to maintain control.
1: I'm going to end in the Swahili saying. It says la sima tusinda, la shaka, la shaka, which means, we shall conquer without a doubt black power.
2: Bukasa was Rap's right-hand man.
5: I was assigned to travel with Rap wherever he would go, and then we started traveling. And as we traveled throughout different areas, everywhere we go, the cities would be on fire or catching on fire right after we leave. (laughs) He would go out in the battlefields and. And go out there with them folks throwing firebombs and fighting and burning and whatever. And he was always ready to go do that. And whenever he talked, he'd go with them. And, and when the rebellion started, rap be on the front line. In
2: 1967, there were at least 75 uprisings or rebellions in cities across the country. From San Francisco to Cincinnati to New York, black people took to the streets.
5: Even Dr. King and his organization feared Rep Brown so much that even if he wasn't nowhere around, there was going to be somebody in the crowd that say Black Power and throw a brick or throw a brick at the police and the police didn't discriminate. They just run in there and start beating them all.
2: As part of COINTELPRO, the FBI's program aimed at preventing the rise of a so-called Black Messiah, the Bureau used dirty tricks to disrupt SNCC and other Black Power groups. Agents began surveilling Rap, and apparently targeted him with trumped up or entirely fabricated criminal charges. The conflict seemed to reach a climax when a car bomb exploded, killing two SNCC activists. There were conflicting theories about what happened, but it looked like the bomb was meant to assassinate Rap he went into hiding. Police departments, the United
5: States government, and their agents, they hated Rap Brown all the way to death.
6: In
2: 1971, after more than a year underground, Rapp was arrested in New York City. I won't get into the particulars of that arrest now. Just know that he got popped on an armed robbery charge. He and some friends were sticking up a lounge to help further their activities in the movement a caper that ended in a shootout with cops. Rapp, 28 years old, went to jail, Rikers Island, and eventually landed at Attica Prison. Tough places to say the least, but it's hard to imagine Rapp living much longer if he hadn't stepped back from the front lines. Death was certainly something he prepared for, and maybe even welcomed. In that autobiography, It was published two years before Rapp was locked up. He wrote America, if it takes my death to organize my people to revolt against you, and to organize your jails to revolt against you, and to organize your troops to revolt against you, and to organize your children to revolt against you, and to organize your God to revolt against you, and to organize your poor to revolt against you, and to organize your country to revolt against you, and to organize mankind to rejoice in your destruction and ruin, then here is my life. But within weeks, maybe months of his arrest, that seemed to change. He converted to Islam. A transformation was underway. Some would even say the creation of a new man. Jamil, beautiful, Abdullah, servant of God, al The Trustworthy.
0: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at TrinitySchool.org. That's TrinitySchool.org.
4: The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher.
2: My own conversion to Islam happened in the fifth grade. We'd been Baptist and Pentecostal, and then my father found new faith. And he wanted all of us, my mom and two younger siblings, to follow suit. My parents pulled me out of public school and sent me to a Muslim private school. I got so bent out of shape by the change that, during my second week at the new school, I got super sick and had to stay home. When I felt better, my parents finally let me go back to public school and join my old friends. In time, I accepted Islam, for a good while anyway. I made my salats and fasted for Ramadan. But I always occupied this weird in-between spot, not fitting in all the way with the Muslim kids and feeling different from my non-Muslim friends, an insider-outsider in both worlds, an observer. When I went to college, I studied comparative religion, trying on other beliefs. I realized pretty young that what we believe, the way we structure our world and the stories we tell ourselves, all of that can be totally changed with the flip of a switch. Part of why I pursued writing when I graduated college, and why I'm so drawn to complex stories like this, is because I sense the power stories have over our lives. What are myths but stories we believe in with cosmic stakes? Imam Jamil's conversion, his flip of that switch, was obviously pivotal in his life. But what kind of man did it make him? Rapp, the man who was throwing firebombs in the streets, who people believe escaped an assassination attempt by the federal government, I could imagine him shooting sheriff's deputies coming into his neighborhood to arrest him. But Imam Jamil, all these years later, that was much less clear. Converting to Islam, it was something I shared with Imam Jamil, something my family shared with him, and something that connected us to lots of other African Americans.
7: We believe anywhere from 20 to 30 percent of the African slaves were either Muslim or exposed to Islam in West Africa.
2: This is Imam Pliman El-Amin, maybe the most prominent elder in Atlanta's African American Muslim community, and the peer of Imam Jamil. A man Pliman, believes that through our ancestors, black people have a deep and innate connection to Islam. Like it's somewhere in our DNA. And when Rabb became Muslim in jail, he was joining something of a tradition because the history of African-American Islam is linked to incarceration. And to the Nation of Islam, the black nationalist organization founded in the 1930s. The nation did a lot of ministry in prisons. Its message, that the white man was a devil resonated with black people living under the yoke of oppression. Malcolm X joined the nation when he was in prison, and after he got out, eventually became its spokesperson. But like many others, he left the organization for Sunni Islam, which is more closely based on the Quran. The vast majority of the world's Muslims are Sunni. And as new sects of Sunni Islam developed in the United States, they also recruited in prisons.
7: When people are in prison, they have time to think, you know, really that's Malcolm. He came to Islam by being in prison and just studying and reading and trying to come with some solutions. So that's been a tradition in our community and where gangs are really dominant in prisons. Many folks see the salvation as being a Muslim. And so they get the protection of the brotherhood or even the sisterhood. And it's also a great productive way of spending your time. Organizing yeah. your time, organizing your yeah, days. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It was a Sunni movement called Darul Islam that reached Rap. Darul was based at a Masjid in the bedford Stuyvesant neighborhood of Brooklyn, not far from where I live now actually. Darul used to send men to minister to inmates of the notorious Rikers Island Jail, where Rap was being held. And those men met Rap at a moment when he was trying to make sense of what was happening in him and around him. Rapp said the fact that Malcolm X converted to Islam made him take it more seriously. The men from Dar'ul organized Friday Juma services at Rikers, and Rapp attended. In 1971, he took the Shahada, the oath to become Muslim. When he got out of prison in 1976, Imam Jamil made the pilgrimage to Mecca and completed the Hajj. He moved to Atlanta, and not long after he arrived, he founded the West End Community Masjid. Imam Pleeman was a leader at another masjid across town.
7: I had the role of keeping a relationship with Imam Jamil. And I always found him very, very uh, Islamic, but always very uh, polite and, and uh, uh, wonderful hospitality and just really a very decent person. How much of
2: what he was doing in the West End did you see as a continuation of who he had been before, or was it a departure?
7: Yeah, no, he, he made a complete change. He made a complete change, but uh, I see it as uh, the Prophet had a... My
2: question reminded hadith, the man clemen of a hadith, of him, a said, teaching from the I, Prophet Muhammad. Came up, but a follower asked the Prophet a question.
7: Do we all have genes? The gene that is, uh, <laughs> really is the identity that birthed the devil. is this fiery nature, the passionate nature that is willing to reject God. And the prophet said, yes, we all have jins, even myself, but I've made my jinn a Muslim. So this is Muhammad the prophet saying that he's made his jinn a Muslim. So I I see Jamil the same way that he had this fiery nature of H.R. Brown and he didn't just give it up and let it go. He just made it a Muslim. So he got the advantages of having that passionate, fiery part, but it was always under a c- control then. And, and he, was, he was made a total conversion. If a Ma'am Jamil had made a total conversion,
2: if his gin, his devil, his fire was always under control, it was hard to see him shooting two sheriff's deputies. But if he ever let the fire of Rat Brown loose, I thought I might find the embers burning in the West End. The community Imam Jamil founded and led. Rapp's vision, that at least seems to have made its mark on the new Muslim village. So much of what the community aspired to be and often became a place of their own where black people could govern themselves, where they could thrive and feel safe to raise their children. That echoed the black nationalist ideal. But that kind of utopia didn't just materialize. There were too many obstacles. It took work, faith, passion. Had a Mam' Jamil ever leaned on his old demons, too?
0: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
4: The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash TheShot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime Annual Plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply.
2: I spent some time around the Weston Masjid when I was a kid, maybe popping in with my father to make prayer a few times. But mostly I would have seen a Jameel at the Eid. The Islamic holy days when Muslims from all over the city would gather to pray. Imam Jamil always stood out there among thousands because he carried this sword, like a scimitar, and he towered over everyone. He's six foot five. Imagine seeing that as a kid. And I did go to this week-long military-style boot camp once that Imam Jamil used to organize in the North Georgia mountains. I must have been 12 or 13 and I could not have been more out of my element. I don't know how to put this politely, but a lot of the other boys were drawn to life in the streets, and that was the last thing I was interested in. Later, I would learn that some of them were already in the streets, shooting, robbing. There was something different about the Muslim boys from the West End. Most often, I would see them on sports teams. Abdus Samad Jihad, the kid who was in the masjid on the night of the shootout, we were on the track team together. He reminded me about his mother, Sister Jamila, who always came to our meets. He told me that she would be a great person to talk with about what it was like living in the West End while Imam Jamil was leading the community. Hi, how are you doing? Yes, now your face looks familiar. Wow. <laughs> now I remember you. I am, yes. Sister Jamila grew up in Atlanta and went to Clark oh, Atlanta God. University. It's one of the historically black colleges that border the West End. When she was still in college, Jamila took the Shahada from my ma'am Jamil.
1: We went into the masjid, and he asked me, was anyone forcing me to become Muslim? I said, no, you know. So he told me to, you know, to testify that there's no God but Allah, you know. And I became Muslim. I, would, I felt free. I felt so happy. And he became more like a uncle, father figure for me because I was 18 and I was, um, you know, he had a corner store at that time. So I would go into the store and talk to him and I felt like, okay, this is my new family, you know.
2: Imam Jamil ran that corner store Jamila mentioned just across the street from the Masjid and across another street from West End Park during the day, Imam Jamil might play basketball with kids from the neighborhood. Everyone says he could really ball. He'd talk to people who came into his store, or chill outside, maybe sitting at a picnic table, greeting neighbors as they walked by, offering them counsel. And Imam Jamil led the daily prayers in the Masjid and delivered sermons during their Friday Juma services. A member of the Masjid shared some recordings of his sermons with us.
5: How do we increase our remembrance of Allah? It is through the establishment of salat, through the prayer, and the maintaining of the prayer, and the punctuality in coming to prayer.
2: The message he was giving to the faithful, attend prayer as much as you can, take care of your families, and care for others in the masjid.
5: You have to begin to practice your prayer now in congregation because this is afforded to you. But when the repression comes, it might be a situation where you might, as in many different countries, you have to move around and move your places of congregational prayer. But right now, you don't have to do that. But that might be the case.
2: Imam Jamil tried to create something like a village in the West End. The masjid hosted festivals and barbecues. Jamila started a summer camp for elementary school kids and hired teenagers as counselors. It was all centered around the masjid and around the daily prayers five times each day. Jamila remembers that part of the community most fondly.
1: It was a beautiful thing to see the brothers go to prayer, you know. The adan call, and you see the brothers walking to the masjid, brothers coming out of the house, you know. It was a beautiful thing.
2: Imam Jamil also assigned a group of men to do armed security patrols of the neighborhood to establish a perimeter to keep out the drug dealing and the prostitution. In the 80s and 90s, this was the height of the crack epidemic. In the community, the masjid, they were right in the thick of it, are some of the busiest drug corners on the west side. Addicted people used to roam the streets like zombies, a few people told me. But West End Park, a public park, remember, became known as Holy Land. You better not tread on that land if you have no business being there. There were consequences. The rules for members of the community were strict, too. The women wore long dresses and hijab. Men wore thobes and kufis. Women were supposed to get permission from their husbands before leaving the house. But for Jamila, at least, that's not how it worked in practice. She was close enough to Imam Jamil to
1: have some sway. His sister used to come to me and say, go ask Imam Jamil can we do such and such? And I said, oh, okay. You know, so, like I said, that uncle-father figure, and he was all, most often, all the time, he said, yes, yes, go ahead. You know,
2: Imam uh, Jamil was in control, and he could monitor what was happening near the masjid and his corner store and on the streets and in the houses that surrounded the park. I asked Imam Pliman about the amount of authority Imam Jamil seemed to have over the West End.
7: Imam hey, Jamil took it literally that in that community now, I'm not saying internationally or all over the world or whatever, but in his community, he was the representative of Prophet Muhammad, Press, peace be upon him. And so he expected the same kind of respect from his community as they would give to the Prophet. And then it became an issue when somebody was, uh, ignoring that leadership or going against that leadership.
2: Over time, Imam Jamil gained a reputation in Atlanta for, quote, cleaning up the West End. From the outside, at least, it appeared that he had secured his peace without violence.
1: It was family-oriented. You know, everyone was close-knit. It was um, really close. I'm sorry. Wow. Yeah. It was uh, family. Everyone loved each other. Everyone cared. The sisterhood was very strong. And no matter what happened, we was there for one another. You know, we was there for one another. I'm sorry. Yeah, you moved. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Now... I'm hearing what Sister Jamila is saying about the beauty and peace of the community. And I'm hearing what a man is saying about rat making his fiery nature, his jinn, his devil, a Muslim. It seems like so much that Imam Jamil would have thrown away if he shot those sheriff's deputies. His own little paradise that he controlled. Why would he do that? It just doesn't make sense. I must be missing something. Either Imam Jamil's transformation from H. Rap Brown wasn't as complete as some would have us believe. Or the West End was never really that peaceful. Or something had thrown him off kilter. Or was it just that he wasn't involved in the shooting, as he's been saying for decades now? There's gotta be more to it. Maybe I just needed to talk to more people who lived in the West End. So I went to a guy named Bilal Suni Ali. He knew both Imam Jamil and H. Rap Brown. In the 60s, Bilal was a member of the Black Panther Party in New York City, and that's where he first met Rap.
6: He was talking the talk that I wanted to hear about, you know, us controlling our neighborhood, you know, community self determination. I mean, that's what black power is. It's black people control the economics and the politics of the area where we live. For Bilal and Rapp,
2: part of creating that community meant securing it themselves. They trained their comrades on how to handle guns, and they did target practice.
6: It was empowering to grow up as a class where you're persecuted and now you're taking the power within your hands to defend yourself. So you know that this, this level of persecution is not going to continue. You know, it's not going to be, my children are not going to grow up like this. In the 80s, Bilal moved to the West End,
2: and he joined the Masjid. Bilal told me there were at least two things Rap didn't like, and Imam Jamil didn't like, drugs and cops. Both came into black communities from the outside and tore them apart. And many of the people who moved into the West End to join the Masjid, from black, working-class neighborhoods in Detroit, New York, and Philadelphia, they had experienced that. On the night of March 16, 2000, Bilal was in the neighborhood, at his house. He heard the gunfire near the Masjid, and when he learned two deputies were shot, the way he sees it, the blame shouldn't fall on the shooter or anyone in the community. It should fall on
6: the deputies. That's a sign that they was coming in and they was wrong, because most of the time they come in and they're wrong. If they get stopped for doing wrong, they deserve what happened to them.
2: The idea that Imam Jamil might shoot at police, it seemed in line with what Bilal knew of the man. But in this case, he didn't think that Imam Jamil was the one who did it, because he said he didn't do it.
6: I knew that what they were saying he was capable of, but when I heard him say he didn't do that, I believed he didn't do it. Just like when he said anything else any other time, I believe, I he ain't never lied to me. So, the way Bilal
2: saw it, Imam and Jamil was capable of shooting the deputies, but he didn't do it. What a contradiction. That left me with a lot more questions. But I did realize the two biggest questions I had been thinking about, what actually happened the night of the shootout, and who was Imam Jamil, really, those questions were totally entangled. As for Bilal's other contention, that Imam Jamil was wrongfully convicted, lots of people believed that. Thousands, tens of thousands, maybe. When I was younger, I did a big investigation that helped free an innocent man from prison. And the reporting mostly consisted of listening to the folks who never stopped believing and tracking down their leads. And Ma'am Jamil's case would be much bigger, with tentacles reaching into shadowy parts of the federal government. You can spend a lifetime tracking down those kinds of leads. But not long after I began working on this project, I read a document that made the reporting seem a little more realistic. It was a letter that I don't think was ever meant to go public. The letter came to me from my producer, Johnny Kaufman, who first started looking into Imam Jamil's case? I'd met Johnny through a friend of a friend, a connection after a random dinner party. He was looking for a reporter and host to work with on a podcast he was imagining. The four page letter was among the reams of court documents connected to Imam Jamil's case. Its author, Andrew Young, civil rights leader and confidant to Martin Luther King Jr. Young was with King when King was assassinated he would become an ambassador to the United Nations and the mayor of Atlanta. Young sent his letter to the Fulton County District Attorney in Atlanta, the office that prosecuted Imam Jamil. It's dated May 26, 2020. That's almost two decades after his conviction. On his own letterhead, Young wrote, quote, I believe that the only reason he was convicted was because of the egregious misconduct of both law enforcement and the individual prosecutor who handled Mr. Alameen's trial. Young was asserting without equivocation that Imam Jamil was innocent, that he was wrongfully convicted. Mr. Alameen, Andrew Young wrote, has outstanding character. You have the power to now right an historic wrong. This should be done not only for the sake of Mr. Alameen, but indeed for the sake of our entire nation and all mankind who yearn for justice. Strong words, right? I felt wary when I first started working on this project. The community of African-American Muslims in Atlanta is small. Some folks from the West End are family friends. Why should I go poking around old pains if the man is already locked up? Frituitous true crime stories are not really my thing. But Young's letter gave me a reason to keep digging. There were plenty more people to talk to, and I was ready to start investigating the details of the shootout to determine if a ma'am Jameel was responsible for what happened that night.
4: And I remember that face, that face, that cold face. I couldn't forget that.
2: That's on the next episode of Radical. Radical is a production of Campside Media, Tenderfoot TV, and iHeart Podcasts. Radical was reported and written by Johnny Kaufman and me, Mosi Secret. Johnny Kaufman is our senior producer. Sheba Joseph is our associate producer. Editing by Eric Benson, Johnny Kaufman, Emily Martinez, and Matt Sher. Fact-checking by Sophie Hurwitz, Kaylin Lynch, and Layla Dose. Original music by Kyle Murdoch and by Ray Murray of Organized Noise. Sound design and mixing by Kevin Seaman. Recording by Ewan Lydtram Ewan and Sheba Joseph. Campside Media's operations team is Doug Slaywin, Ashley Warren, Aliyah Papes, Destiny Dingle, and Sabina Mera. The executive producers at Campside Media are Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. For Tinderfoot TV, executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. The executive producers at iHeart Podcasts are Matt Frederick and Alex Williams, with additional support from Trevor Young.
0: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.